Hey folks, welcome to the Green Root Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Schlossberg. And for this episode, we have with us Ananda Lee Tan. Ananda has been organizing grassroots social movements since 1986, building activist coalitions, networks and alliances for indigenous land defense, worker rights, environmental justice, energy democracy, ecological forestry, food sovereignty, climate justice, community self-determination and peace around the world. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for having me. So I've known you, if not in person, but through the internet for, oh, maybe 15 years through biomass incineration work stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was involved with that for a while, as listeners know, concerns about burning various things for energy and their impacts in terms of air pollution, environmental impacts, climate, you name it. There is an impact tied into that. So maybe let's start there. You do lots of different things. So I definitely want to get into all of that or as much as possible. But let's start a little bit on Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives, also known as Gaia. Thanks, Joshua. Well, around the time you and I met, I had just gotten involved uh, maybe a couple of years before that with uh, the Global Alliance uh, for Incinerator Alternatives, also known as the Global Anti-Incinerator Alliance. And uh, the origin of the name is interesting because sometimes uh, folks in our sphere in the world of environmentalism uh, ask whether it has anything to do with Lovelock and Gaia theory, which it doesn't. In fact, there was a lot of concern that it, ha it did have uh, something to do with uh, what's these days you know, counted as sort of a, an interesting sort of a deep ecology theory, but very sort of new age and um, spiritual in a way that a lot of people just, you know, uh, was it was difficult for a lot of people to accept, especially when later on Lovelock, you know, turned out to be pro-nuclear. <laughs> but um, but that said, uh, the origins of Gaia are, um, and before I joined Gaia, were when grassroots uh, community-led movements and activists around the world we're finding this proliferation of waste incineration uh, technologies. So big waste uh, and energy companies were showing up in the Philippines, in India, in Brazil, in South Africa, all over the world really, trying to peddle these incinerator technologies, um, promoting the burning of waste as being this uh, energy generating, clean energy and um, big waste solution that governments should, uh, should invest in. And they had convinced a number of governments, uh, both uh, municipal and state level governments, to subsidize and agree to go ahead with building these very polluting uh, facilities, uh, unawares of the fact of you know all the, the impacts. And so uh, prior to this, uh, what um, the history prior to Gaia was that through the 90s and late 80s, a lot of what is known as the environmental justice movement uh, in the U.S., really uh, movements of grassroots environmental movements led by black, brown, indigenous and poor communities across the U.S. had been fighting waste incinerators through the 80s and, and 90s. And they're, they sort of cut their teeth. They're actually, there was a lot, of, uh, a lot of the backdrop to the environmental justice movement was uh, environmental racism where a lot of uh, these communities felt like big environmental groups like the Sierra Club and NRDC and big national environmental NGOs were not rep not only not representing the interests of black, brown, indigenous and poor communities, that sometimes they were uh, uh, stepping on their toes and kind of running roughshod over their rights and allowing for big polluting industries to be built in their communities um, in avoiding wealthier, more affluent white communities. Um, and so a lot of that environmental racism led to the environmental justice movement. And one of the first industries they encountered uh, that was being uh, redlined into their backyards 
because a lot of it was policies that allowed for these corporations to build these polluting facilities in places where there was uh, very little resistance um, and places where people did not have as much rights, um, the rights to clean air, clean water, healthy food as privileged white communities. So people were forced to fight these polluting industries and a, a large number of them were waste uh, related, both landfill uh, companies, but also toxic landfill sites, but also waste incinerators. And through the 90s, uh, the story is that over 400 in industry proposals were stopped by advocates uh, from the environmental justice movement. A big success story and eventually ended up in, I think around 97, 98. Um, again, before I got involved in this field of activism, uh, there was, uh, the I think all proposals to build waste incinerators had been stopped successfully across the United States. So later in the 90s, in 98, 99, when these same companies then had somewhere uh, needed somewhere to go, they ended up going to the global south to, to peddle and uh, sell their dirty technologies, those community groups got in touch with the ones in the U.S. and said, say, hey, what's up? You know, what, what, you know, what did you do? Or what's the story? What's the scoop? And they had an international conference in Johannesburg, I believe. Anyway, in South Africa, somewhere in South Africa, where hundreds of community activists uh, came together, uh, realized that there was this, this global trend of incinerator technology vendors from the U.S. and Europe because they had been stopped by citizen activism or um, grassroots activism, uh, taking their dirty technologies to the global south to peddle them as clean tech. And so that, that led to this awareness that there needed to be a global di dialogue, also a network that could support each other with very little means because these grassroots activists didn't have the kind of money that the Sierra Clubs or the NRDCs did. They had to, uh, to find ways to provide mutual aid and support for each other in stopping these facilities. And so in 99, Gaia, the Global Anti-Incinerator Alliance, was was started as such a global network of resistance uh, to dirty uh, waste technologies and dirty incinerator uh, companies. Uh, in that process, however, uh, a number of community groups pointed out that unless we had a solution, an alternative to waste incineration, it would be hard to defeat these companies because most of the governments that were buying into these plans uh, were struggling with uh, where to place the garbage. Uh, landfills were getting very costly, the cost of land, and uh, so they had been successfully convinced that rather than find expensive land to dispose of the garbage, that they could burn it and turn around a profit by generating electricity uh, from this garbage. So. Clearly, uh, there had been uh, years before that, and you know, actually, historically, garbage uh, uh, was uh, the the creation of garbage was was really a uh, a modern. I I don't almost say almost a 21st century thing because um, if you uh, most of us uh, in our generation uh, probably have grandparents and parents in communities who uh, that didn't produce garbage. As um, most communities uh, in the old days found ways to recycle, reuse garbage, and there wasn't as much disposable stuff being produced back in back in the day. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of disposable materials are, are fairly new, like plastic, single-use plastic. So, um, so anyway, uh, to cut to to provide the concise response to the name, uh, a number of members of Gaia started looking into recycling strategies, or what are commonly known as zero waste strategies. And uh, and found that zero waste was a perfect uh, alternative, you know, uh, and not just an alternative to burning garbage, but really an alternative to looking at how we consume, produce, extract, 
and really deal with uh, material stuff in our life. Um, most people are familiar with the story of stuff, which was actually a direct one of the products uh, from that field. Uh, Annie Leonard, the producer, was the first staff person for Gaia, one of the first two staff people. And so uh, she's now back at Greenpeace. But uh, back in the day, she was one of the conveners and, and became one of the first organizers for this uh, alliance. And the decision was taken that we would lead with a solutions-oriented name. So it became the Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives uh, to promote zero waste and other um, solutions that could be both, both clean but also community-controlled. Sorry, Absolutely. that was a long response, uh, but uh, there's some background to uh, Gaia. And I got involved in... Um, 2005 uh, around there and um, and then uh, 2004 2005 I, I I was staffed there till about 2013 I want to say 2013 and then um, but I, uh, I I played the role of the US and Canada coordinator um, and uh, again a very a very grassroots uh, alliance with very few staff you know back when I joined there was one staff per each global region that just provided online support you know communication support network coordination um sharing uh doing research when asked and providing remote um uh support to grassroots communities fighting uh incinerators great well that's a great overview and i think it's really essential because not everyone who's familiar with environmental issues is familiar with what's going on with incineration it's a less paid attention to topic which you can speculate on if you like but arguably, hell, I would say inarguably, it's some of the most polluting technologies that are out there. And therefore, it's one of the most important issues. And I think you made a really excellent point that because of the success that happened in North America, in the U.S. in regards to pushing out these facilities, the corporations are like, well, let's just go somewhere where it's easier and there's going to be less pushback. And so in the global south, so it's ironic. It's I mean, in a sense, it's a it's a nimbyism or whatever. I think that people should be pushing things out of their backyard if they're bad. But we do have to realize, well, here we have the luxury of being able to have all these access to resources. And now we're pushing into places where it's harder for folks to fight. So would you say that there's almost an obligation for those of us who, you know, we fight our battles here. We should obviously fight our battles here. And then they go elsewhere and they're like, ah, out of sight, out of mind. Do we have an obligation to be responsible for that? Absolutely, Josh, uh, because I think when we look at uh, most issues, environmental issues, social justice issues, issues that are causing pain, harm, suffering to people anywhere in the world, um, you realize that we are somehow tied to it, that it's not separate from us. It's like uh, the water we uh, drink, the air we breathe uh, affects everybody. Um, there's no way to say this is my airspace and, and not yours. Um, because as we know, with climate change, uh, what we do in one place is going to impact somewhere, someone somewhere else. And I think the, the expansion of environmental consciousness, I'd say, in the 21st century has been really not a new area, but it's really been an area where I'd say a lot of Eurocentric cultures have actually started to realize that uh, the cultures that are oldest on the land anywhere in the world, um, you know, indigenous cultures, you know, and what they've been telling us about the connectivity of life, is actually true, is scientific. You know, uh, what science discounted even 50 years ago as airy fairy, uh, primitive, you know, savage belief systems are actually realized that that's actually much more uh, central to how we need to understand life uh, than anything that's come up, been come up with in universities and labs and uh, 
by people in white uh, people in white lab coats, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and that on the modern science spectrum, we're relatively new and somewhat infantile in our understanding of ecology. I mean, take this pandemic, the fact that this pandemic was not just uh, something that happened in wet marks in Asia, but that the realization that the root cause has been biodiversity destruction, has been the globalization of uh, industry, has been the fact that when we have eliminated so many species and there's nowhere for a particular virus to go, it can skip species and jump to the to, and, and come back and impact us. And then uh, and realizing that uh, the root causes of uh, this pandemic are really a global economic crisis called capitalism. That in fact, uh, it. Uh, I think that was the realization. I think on the, the with the Gaia and the global amounts of incinerator alternatives, but that the obligation was not just because uh, we we can uh, empathize with people fighting a similar ill in a distant land because we had done so here. Because again, the groups who are first to express solidarity, and this is worth noting, uh, because even in the U.S., the folks you first see, hear of and uh, who take up arms to support. Uh, struggles in the global south or anywhere in the world are usually some of the poorest marginalized communities um, here uh, in uh, Turtle Island, so-called North America. Mm -hmm. People, indigenous peoples and other struggles who know what it's like to be invaded, you know, by a colonizer uh, and uh, and then, uh, you know, and, and, you know, forced to uh, expose to disease, you know, uh, smallpox, you know, what have you. Um, forced off your lands, you know, um, and forced into residential schools, um, you know, uh, made to, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's it's the people who have suffered most um, and who've been most historically harmed that are usually the first to step up in, and, and take acts of solidarity. And I think it goes, extends, well, the word solidarity itself, I think, is, is what is, to me, fascinating in these times, because I think um, uh, it, to me, it, uh, it's, expresses a, a form of unity, a, a, a sense that we share mutual cause, you know, share common cause with people around the world. And that it's not that uh, we just care for or have large hearts, but that we see um, in the liberation and the protection and safety and health of others, uh, our own liberation and safety and health. So I think in that sense, the the globalization of this resistance against incinerators is really an expression of the fact that this is a global struggle. It's the same companies that are trying to uh, destroy resources, impact human health, and and steal from communities in Brazil as uh, tried to do it here before. And uh, and the the other aspect of it that you mentioned, which is interesting, is that the nimbyism actually happens with the largest, most wealthiest organizations who have siloed issues to where you're only looking at climate change, only looking at waste, only looking at biodiversity protection, and not realizing that all these issues are connected and that we cannot fight them as um, disparate, you know, uh, associated and siloed struggles, that we have to see the big picture to, to be able to understand that um, it, we'll have to uh, fight capitalism, colonialism, imperialism, neoliberal policyism, uh, if we are to successfully defend uh, or protect the earth against its the current uh, agenda of destruction, if you will. Yeah, we got to take off our blinders. We got to look at the interconnecting aspects. We got to go to the root. And that's what I'm interested in doing here on the podcast. So mm -hmm. maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the impacts of trash incineration, right? Because, all right, you have some garbage. Oh, that's, that's nasty garbage. It'll be in the landfill. Let's get rid of it. We burn it. It disappears. We're done with it forever. What's wrong mm -hmm. with that? Seems great. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll start this. Uh, I just remembered uh, 
in closing the last comment that uh, one of the um, sort of inspirational founders of Gaia, a chemist named Paul Conant, uh, Dr. Paul Conant, he, uh, and I don't know if he's, he, or he created this phrase, but I, I attribute it to him all the time anyway, is that he said that in order to, um, you have to start with nimbyism, you have to start with NIMBY in order to get to NOPE. Yep. And uh, he was, so basically he, what he meant is that in order to understand what we need to protect globally, we need to start locally in our own backyard. So unless you can have a good sense of why you want to take a not in my backyard st stance, you will never get to a not on planet Earth, a NOPE stance. Yep. And, and uh, to me, it was always relevant because international NGOs um, would sometimes say, oh, that's a NIMBY issue. Oh, that's local. We don't have time for local. But... I've always pointed out that unless you can take a stand locally, you'll never be able to defeat these giant multinational corporations destroying the earth globally. Um, and the only successful strategy for getting there is community by community, block by block, street by street, region by region, and really in a bottom-up fashion. So so start with that, that uh, context. Um, waste incineration um, is relevant uh, beyond just its immediate local impacts. Um, um, uh, it's uh, the origins of a lot of uh, the struggles were really the realization that burning waste is probably the most toxic um, form of industrial process uh, that humans have ever come up with. Just the levels of mercury, dioxins, and other cancer-causing um, uh, compounds um, that are produced, and new compounds, I'd say, because when you get all of society's garbage together, put them in these furnaces and burn them, you're mixing so many different existing compounds that are toxic together. You're creating these super compounds that uh, a lot of people have referred to as dioxins over the years. But these super compounds are compounds that don't naturally exist, that are the super culmination of extreme uh, petrochemical and, and other synthetic chemical processes that you then bring together in a combustion chamber, burn together, and are put out of the smokestack. And their uh, capacity to kill people is not much more than any pretty much any other industry uh, other than perhaps you could arguably the nuclear power industry. Um, but even there, I mean, the, the short term deaths would be, you know, it, there's no other industry that kind of kind of compete with waste incineration in terms of human health impact. Uh, so naturally, the first line of struggle in many of the communities that are fighting these waste incinerator proposals or, or historically have was really to protect, defend their kids against uh, these super toxins that were going to be produced in their backyards or were being produced and were causing some of the highest uh, rare cancer clusters amongst children or levels of asthma higher than any other community you know, ever seen. I think Detroit was one of those cases where the asthma levels, the childhood asthma levels were higher than anywhere on the planet for a while when it was that, that, that incinerator was first built. But that kind of situation uh, is, of course, you know, our first line of defense is how do we protect uh, our kids against these huge, you know, polluting industries. Uh, but later on, we realized that there was all these other downstream effects that, you know, that pollution would just carry on down through waterways like they do in ecosystems, get into the soil with the dumping of the ash from um, uh, that would be generated uh, and polluting waterways all over the place. Uh, but then also that some of those... Um, Smaller particulate, uh, toxic particulate uh, pieces will go much further and travel much further and affect a much larger region than the immediate community. But beyond that, um, what we've realized uh, in the last uh, 15 years or so is that the climate change impacts of, um, of burning waste are that much more severe. In fact, um, what the mainstream environmental movement um, 
I didn't understand and for the longest time failed to really uh, see was that burning waste to generate energy was something in the magnitude of three to four times more carbon intensive than burning coal. Um, and I don't have the exact numbers you could go to, you know, uh, Mike Ewald or someone at the Energy Justice Network, or there's a, a, there's actually even more recent studies. I think I've found the UN has been forced to look at some of the stuff and realizing that burning biomass and burning waste is, is hugely car uh, problematic for the climate. But waste is up there amongst uh, probably the most um, burning waste is, I, I believe, the most carbon intensive uh, form of generating energy in the world. So it's uh, that much more dangerous than coal power plants to, to, for climate change. Uh, and by when I say carbon intensive, it's the, the pollution load, the actual mass of carbon dioxide pollution, uh, produced per unit of electricity generated. So what's deceptive is when you're looking at absolute numbers, a coal power plant may actually generate overall more carbon, but is that much more efficient. And so uh, ends up generating less per amount of unit, uh, per amount of energy uh, generated, whereas waste is just uh, the worst possible way to generate energy, uh, electricity because you're getting, you know, three to four times more carbon pollution than coal. Um, so with that factored in, um, that became a big part of, uh, when I got involved with Gaia, uh, we realized that waste incinerator was being subsidized. And because a lot of the big green groups uh, and, you know, I think you've noted it on your podcast before that a lot of the big green groups were blatantly ignoring the fact that burning waste, burning biomass was problematic for the climate. Uh, they were actually allowing these corporations to get huge subsidies from both uh, governments, national governments, but also the UN. And uh, uh, countries like India were being paid hundreds of millions of uh, dollars uh, by global carbon trading mechanisms to build waste incinerators. Um, and we're seeing that now with biomass incinerators in a lot of parts of the world. Even today, we have the situation here in, in, in British Columbia, so-called British Columbia, actually uh, the unceded territories of many First Nations. Old growth forests are being harvested now to make wood pellets to ship to, to Europe and China and uh, to burn as biomass energy because it is all of a sudden seen as clean energy. So we continue to provide these false subsidies to some of the dirtiest forms of energy. Uh, and biomass is something like twice, or one and a half times, twice as uh, carbon intensive as coal. So it's it's r ridiculous that uh, with plans to phase out coal power, a country like uh, the UK were, you know, would, um, uh, would be buying wood pellets made from old ghost forests to uh, to burn in their old coal power plants. Um, and so, but that that's a reality that's going on right now. And uh, that's part of what we really desperately need to stop because we are not only uh, going to be creating pollution carbon uh, loads that are unmanageable, um, you know, and uh, that in there's no way we will be able to suck that back carbon back in time through tree plantations uh, to avoid the worst uh, cataclysmic uh, impacts of climate change because uh, it takes you know 80 to 100 years to actually do that uh, to suck that carbon back in from uh, the atmosphere. But uh, what's worse is that. Uh, in order to, you know, while destroying the climate, we're also destroying some of the primeval forest ecosystems that uh, we need to breathe, to contain contagion, to, um, to, to allow for all species to survive, and, and for really, uh, for so much more. We're starting to realize our whole entire food systems are at risk because we're burning too much. Yeah, well, thanks for pointing all that out. Super, super important. Can you give an example maybe of a trash incinerator battle in the U.S. and then maybe one overseas? So mm. it could be a victory or it could be a loss. Just any 
any way you can paint yeah. that picture? Yeah, I think um, these, um, when I said earlier that uh, 400 proposals had uh, been stopped and there were huge victories and I think the community groups and oftentimes local grandmothers uh, councils, uh, you know, there's this actually um, Southeast LA had these grandmothers, I can't remember the name, it was uh, Latina uh, grandmas who came out and brought their families out in protest and stopped like 11 different incinerator proposals over the years. And their grandchildren right now are continuing the organizing work and with groups like East Yard Communities for Environmental Justice and uh, and so many other community-based organizations, environmental justice groups. Uh, and these are, it's worthy noting that, that that success because these groups fought these big corporations, multi-million dollar corporations with very few resources. Uh, some of those fights weren't as successful. Some of those fights were 30-year-old fights. And, and recently, a couple of years ago, um, our uh, comrades in Detroit who'd been fighting uh, the construction of an incinerator in the 80s, which finally got built in 88, 89, and, uh, and then uh, was uh, subsidized to the tune of billions of dollars. Arguably, one of the single largest factors behind Detroit's bankruptcy was the $2 billion that the city of Detroit were uh, uh, in debt to the people who had financed the construction and upkeep of this uh, massive polluting incinerator, which never generated any revenue, but... Uh, the government there was falsely pitched by one of these big corporations that this was a, something good to invest in. You know, companies like Covanta and Wheelabrator and many other companies. Uh, in fact, that one was bought and sold by a number of different companies before it finally went belly up. But after a 30 some odd year battle, community members in Detroit were finally able to shut that thing down. Um, and, you know, for many different reasons, uh, economic viability and otherwise. But Beasts like that incinerator, which at one time was the largest waste incinerator in North America um, and still amongst the top five, at least, uh, uh, had to be, they were so ex it was so expensive to burn waste, they had to continually look to uh, subsidies from the government, from state and federal governments, but also ways to con, con local politicians into assuming the debt load um, from the, the, the upkeep the maintenance, because uh, they needed continual maintenance um, and and upkeep. And uh, and the public or grassroots groups, the environmental justice community in uh, Detroit finally succeeded in uh, cutting enough of those subsidies or stopping uh, from local to state enough government subsidies going to that corporation to, to force its closure. And, and some really interesting campaigns, um, under, figuring out ways in which uh, because the rules are really stacked, um, despite the fact that there was a Clean Air Act once and that the current government has totally you know, um, dismantled any environmental protections that were uh, secured over the last 30 years. Uh, even the existing, uh, before Trump got in, the existing set of um, rules, regulations and environmental protections on the Environmental Protection Agency were inadequate. We all know that. They, they, they never really protected communities. In fact, corporations always got the benefit of the doubt always had the upper hand, could always find loopholes and ways in which to build these uh, polluting uh, industries. But uh, so public community groups always had to be really creative. And in Detroit, they came up with a campaign called What's That Smell that uh, required, uh, found a kind of remote order violation bylaw that would allow anyone who uh, to report uh, any kind of industrial, you know, order um, infraction violation to a government agency that would actually force regular check, uh, check, uh, regular uh, pollution monitoring checks and stuff that these companies do not do because they don't have to. Uh, they're given enough loopholes to avoid avoid that. 
but it became so expensive for the incinerator company in Detroit to keep checking on um, their violations, and they have many uh, because there were enough odor complaints being phoned in by motorists, by pedestrians, by people living in the neighborhood, people passing through the neighborhood, that this community group su su succeeded in making that cost so high that uh, this company, just from simple phone calls, from uh, you know, average citizens smelling the uh, the the not the nauseous kind of stuff coming out of the smokestacks and phoning it in, uh, they cost enough of a they created enough of a cost barrier for the for this multi million dollar holding corporation uh, to finally shut shut its shop. Um, and it really and it was you know it was quite uh, it, it took a lot of tenacity, a lot of time, a lot of. Uh, knocking on doors, passing out numbers, and really spreading the message of this uh, what's that smell campaign to, to, to uh, do that. But it's worth noting because that's, that's exactly the kind of grassroots campaign that seems to have succeeded over the years. You know, not the big budget, splashy, you know, uh, online, you know, snazzy looking, you know, media campaigns, but really grassroots activism, um, you know, that involves a lot of door knocking, that involves, involves a lot of commitment and involves sometimes in t you know what appear like uphill battles uh, uh, for ordinary folks. So it's worth noting that and at the same time realize that there's many such incinerators around the world that have been built that people are still fighting. And the one I'd suggest is uh, the one I'm familiar with in uh, New Delhi uh, in India, the Timarpur Okla Waste Incinerator, which was directly built by money funded by the UNF Triple C's clean development mechanism. So the first carbon trading mechanism that was created under the Kyoto Protocol funded a whole host of what they call clean energy technologies and, and projects, including nuclear power plants, including all kinds of bogus, you know, in, uh, industrial infrastructure. But in this case, a waste incinerator in the in the in one of the suburb, suburbs of New Delhi, which um, was had to be funded twice because the first round of funding. Uh, was not able to get this very inefficient clunker of machine off the ground. They, the city of Delhi could not rationalize the garbage collection costs. Uh, and because so much of the garbage was wet, it took forever to burn. They used to have to pour kerosene and diesel over the garbage after it was lit to keep it burning. It was that, um, you know, uh, it, it was problematic on so many different levels, but it cost hundreds of millions of dollars to build. They couldn't keep it running. They shut it down. Then they sought another run around of subsidies about 10 years ago. They got got another shot in their arm. They kept building it and um, finally got it through, you know, uh, because of a very corrupt government. Uh, it's uh, it's still an ongoing problem. Delhi has one of uh, now because of a whole host of industries and more cars than India has ever seen before. Delhi's kind of up amongst the top five in terms of air pollution rates um, uh, globally, um, you know, along with Shanghai, Beijing and a host of other cities. But um so it's um it's uh, air pollution rates that are killing people on a daily basis, uh, making life untenable. Um, uh, and this waste incinerator is a big um, adds a huge load to that. And so I, I, I mention this because it's important um, that um, that we continue to uh, uh, you know support struggles and community groups that are opposing these um, facilities around the world. And that's one beast that needs to be stopped. Thank you for letting us know about that. That is super super important and. Yeah, I tend to focus on the U.S. just because I have a limited bandwidth, but some of the most egregious stuff is going on in other parts of the world, and we can't turn a blind eye to that. So really appreciate you elucidating that. So let's talk a little bit more about the larger concept of climate justice. So obviously incineration is one component of it, but it's 
it's more than that. So do you want to talk a little bit about that and maybe what you're doing these days on around yeah. that? Sure. The, um, well, the, the frame climate justice really came out of the environmental justice movement. I usually like to uh, uh, bring that up because oftentimes you find that the term is now being used by all kinds of people. Even at the UN, the term has become quite popular and it, uh, some would say uh, it's been uh, watered down or taken away from its original intent and purposing. Um, and uh, my familiarity with the word comes uh, from a time when it was uh, a group called the Indigenous Environmental Network uh, really brought it up at a UN gathering at Den Haag um, in the early 2000s. Um, but uh, it, I'll go back a few years because IEN, the Indigenous Environmental Network, was one of the organizations that uh, was part of the first People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit in 1991 uh, that was held in DC where thousands of activists from black, brown, indigenous, and working class white communities came together to really articulate a different platform that really call out environmental racism, but also to say that environmentalism isn't something that's separate from people's lives, that it's really about, uh, you know, where we live, where we breathe, where we work, where we play, where we pray. You know, it, it all comes back down to defining how do we support and protect our communities on multiple levels and and not look at it as uh, environmentalism as something separate. Um, I think the, the older uh, version of that Framing, of course, is uh, which is an indigenous one, um, and the EJ movement recognizes that the roots of our struggle go back at least 524 years, with the advent of co colonialism uh, in North America. That uh, that protecting forests are actually really about protecting our food, you know, because um, what we hunt, what we fish, what we, you know, everything that nature provides us to survive on, it becomes part of ourselves, and so our responsibility to protecting. Uh, you know, um, deer or elk or moose that we may eat uh, is essentially about protecting our own bodies, protecting our own nutrition, protecting our own reliance, and really what is uh, I call the principle of reciprocity. And that's really one of the core principles of environmental justice is that we're not, it's not a charitable effort. It's not a effort to save another species or protect another race. It's, a, it's an extension of what we were talking about earlier that uh, really ours, our 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 efforts to defend other beings and other species is really recognizing that their survival is our survival and that our that our struggles are mutual. And so in that um, context, in the in this first People of Color Summit uh, in 1991, really chose to redefine environmentalism as something bigger than just uh, an abstract conf, uh, concept of prote protecting uh, an environment that was separate from us, that we were in fact the environmental movement had to really include every aspect of our being and recognize that a lot of the forms of oppression that uh, led to environmental problems really were rooted in older struggles, uh, struggles against colonialism, imperialism, capitalism, that uh, we could not uh, separate uh, struggles against white supremacy, for example, you know, uh, from struggles against the environment, that they were one and the same. The fact that when you looked at the fact that the largest, most polluting industries causing climate change today, you know, are rooted in the plantation economy of years past, that the people who, the coal power plants, the utility companies, the nuclear power companies, the oil companies, where does their money originally come from? Where does Wall Street's money originally come from? And you realize that the money was generated in a plantation economy, that their great grandfathers were the plantation owners that had, you know, uh, both uh, killed people here you know, to establish their plantations and then, then stolen people from another land and brought them as slaves and uh, used that 
uh, stolen labor to generate their wealth, uh, you realize the roots of our struggle, in fact, of even climate change, really go down to our fight fight against a, a historic white supremacy that's tied in with colonial control of these lands and lives of people. And so the movement for black lives is really at its root an environmental movement. And, and I'm, I mean, it's really encouraging to see some, some of the articles coming out right now that are actually reinforcing that. People are finally stepping up and going, yes, we cannot protect the environment unless we stand up for black lives. We cannot protect, prevent climate change unless we stand behind indigenous peoples in their landline struggles. There's no way we're going to take on these big fossil fuel corporations or any other polluting industry for that matter and, and defeat them unless we center our efforts around standing in solidarity with indigenous peoples, standing in solidarity with black lives, standing in, in solidarity with the most marginalized people on this planet. And so that was really what defines both climate justice and environmental justice is that it's not just about the environment, it's about every fight that has ever mattered. It's, it's about our fight against... Uh, um, military dictatorships oppressing people, you know, halfway around the planet. And it's about um, uh, taking up the struggle against some of the uh, same people um, ordering those military dictatorships uh, to, to oppress people halfway the, uh, across the planet back here in ho at home. Some of those same forces that are now uh, turning up the military heat on our own peoples in our backyards at places like Portland. Yeah, so, well, I, I appreciate you bringing all those topics that a lot of people think are separate together because they're not. I mean, these are all basically different shoots of the same thing. It's, it's, it's all one aspect. And obviously sometimes we have to address one piece at a time, but we have to see where it interconnects and we need to not neglect that. We have to build all those connections. So I think yeah. that's extremely important what you were saying there. Yeah. So in terms of the stuff that you're working on these days or that you mm -hmm. think should be more on people's radar, mm -hmm. what's going on in that end? Well, so actually it's an extension of what we were just talking about. Um, I'm talking to a set of activists. Um, we're trying to figure out ways in which uh, folks can understand struggles against uh, racism, caste, classism, uh, and the oppression of, in this case, uh, Dalit, which is the lowest class in South Asia, and Adivasi, which is indigenous struggles in India, and see them as leaders in the fight for climate justice. Um, how do that? And 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 a lot of my time is spent um, actually dealing with the world of the nonprofit industrial complex and philanthropy, and really making people with privilege understand that the struggles on the ground actually really get the environmental justice, climate justice stuff. You don't have to really educate the poorest of the poor in understanding that climate change is linked to military dictatorship, is linked to pollution, is linked to poverty, is linked to police violence is linked to the prisons being built in their backyard, uh, that all of these are connected under this broad rubric of climate justice. Um, but my job largely convinced, uh, involves convincing uh, some of the most privileged in society to understand that actually they have to start learning from the poor, that um, if we're seeking real wisdom on how to tackle something as complex as climate change, let's not bring together the most privileged, well-paid scientists and bureaucrats to a big international conference, let's go on the ground into the millions of communities that are on the front lines of um, climate change, the communities that are first and most impacted by the storms, the floods, the fires, the droughts, but also the pandemics, the police violence, the prison industrial complex, you know, the complex web of pollution, you know, because as we know, it's not just greenhouse gas emissions, it's all the toxics and co-pollutants that are part of the package. To really understand how people are both fighting those various points of oppression that are all interconnected, but doing so in an intersectional way, where they realize that in order to take down that smokestack, they first may have to decommission that prison, 
or that they first may have to defund the police, or that they first may have to take out the waste incinerator before they even get to any kind of a meaningful resolve on what climate policy looks like for that region. Uh, so it, it's, it's really the movements that are already there in terms of their intersectional understanding of this complex ecological mess. And they, those that involve some of the poorest, least funded movements in the world. If the wealthy of this world who are concerned about the environment dropped all their uh, assumption of, um, of exceptional assumption of, you know, knowing what climate change is all about or knowing what the solutions are and followed the directives of the poor, you know, we would be in a different place. We'd actually be able to successfully tackle. So a lot of the work I do right now involves what a friend of mine told me a few years ago is using the stories of the poor to really uh, liberate the minds of the rich to understanding that um, we need to reprioritize you know, what we do if we are going to be able to struggle together in protecting our children's future. Yeah. I, that, that may have been a bit vague, but that's, that's kind of what I'm doing broadly, um, shifting the minds of people who, who want to support the survivors of the cyclone in Bangladesh or survivors of the earthquake in Haiti or who want to go out there and um, help grassroots movements fight various dictators like Bolsonaro and Duterte and Modi and Trump. But uh, to understand really that that support is important, but that support is uh, very connected to our struggles back home and that uh, how we, um, you know, how we invest our time and our efforts in fighting for climate, fighting against climate change or fighting for a green economy or a green new deal uh, cannot be delinked from the, the struggles against uh, these other adjacent struggles and, and really interlinked struggles. So one thing I usually say is that we cannot decarbonize our economy unless we detoxify, demilitarize, degentrify, um, and decolonize our economy first. So, uh, so, and of course, we take a complex problem like climate change and make it even more complex to understand <laughs> how we need to unpack this mess. But that's really uh, what we need to do. I mean, uh, uh, we have to. It, it it rather than say draw down, I would say we have to dismantle up. You know, uh, there's there's problems with drawdown theory. We won't, don't need to get into that, but I'd say the the antithesis, or really for me, what the the successful and opposite uh, leaning grassroots strategy is uh, is uh, is really about dismantling bottom up systems of oppression, as opposed to looking top down at ways to draw down carbon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, obviously it does complicate things more, but that's how it is. Sorry. <laughs> Existence is complicated, and at the same time, it gives people more ways to interface into the larger thing. So people might have a passion in one area. Well, great. Well, that ties in. Guess what? It all ties in. So you can work on this piece, but see how it's connected to this piece as well. Yeah. So I think that's beautiful. I think there's lots of potential with that. And of course, yeah, lots of struggle. And I do think, yeah, a lot of the folks, a lot of the conversation about, say, climate is with folks who are for the most part, buffered by the worst impacts as of right now. It may come to a time when that changes, but some of us, oh, it's a, it's this summer is slightly uncomfortable for me. It's like, well, that's not the same as my village is underwater half of the year. So yeah. that, that's a for real, for real issue that not enough attention is being called to. And I really appreciate that you're doing that work. Mm. So let's talk about some solutions-oriented stuff. So even though we left the waste incineration topic, let's talk mm -hmm. a little bit about the zero waste piece. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And uh, actually, the one other thing I should mention before I get into that is um, 
the the other piece part of my time is being spent on just transition strategies. Um, so a lot of that, and this is actually going back to some of my early work uh, back in the in the early nineties, um, where I uh, I used to be a forest worker. I don't know if you know this. I used to plant trees for a living, and that's uh, really the only thing I know how to do is 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 plant trees in severely devastated uh, industrial forest landscapes. Um, but uh, but I shouldn't say that's the only thing. But that's where I cut my teeth, and I spent 16 years of my life planting trees across in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, planted probably two million seedlings across very diverse forest ecosystems. And uh, and in that arena, found um, through the 80s and 90s, learned uh, you know how to organize uh, by organizing tree planters unions. And so labor organizing was my original. Uh, uh, sort of place where I cut my teeth organizing, but very quickly understood the kind of unions we needed to protect ourselves in the long term weren't really about unions just protecting our wages and our jobs and our worksite conditions, but that that we had to connect with other struggles. So early in the 90s or late in the late 80s, early 90s, I started working at the intersection of labor justice uh, through my tree planting unionizing efforts, but also doing indigenous solidarity work um, in supporting uh, at, the, at that time Indigenous communities that were protecting them, uh, that were defending their lands against logging and mining companies, and uh, and of course, petrochemical companies and pipelines, and uh, and and then also um, uh, environmental efforts, really that were aimed at that time solely protect biodiversity or water or air, but very quickly understood that our struggles were connected, and that in order to to uh, take on big multinational forest corporations uh, that we were fighting here in the Northwest, we needed both the labor unions, the indigenous communities, and the environmentalists to be working together. Uh, and uh, so that was my early experience with what later became known as Just Transition. Uh, really a, uh, an effort, Just Transition to me defines a collaborative effort or a collaborative strategy that realizes that you cannot really address environmental uh, issues separate from a very critical look at the economic drivers of the and, and really how do we come up with alternative economic solutions, not band-aid solutions, not clean technologies or uh, isolated alternatives, you know, not just an alternative to waste incineration, but really a, a systemic alternative to something that would obviate the need for even in um, dirty technologies like waste incineration. So in that context, zero waste is, is a perfect example, but uh, to spend a bit more time in just transition, and just transition actually was, a while well, it was a term that came up in the labor movement, originally in a sector of the labor movement that dealt with some of the most harmful industries. So the oil, chemical and atomic workers union of all unions were the union that invested time in some of their staff, uh, namely uh, an organizer named Tony Mazaki, uh, to to really go around and really research what was the kind of change that unions could support that really not only uh, protected workers, but protected their health. Uh, protected workers in conjunction with the uh, communities that they lived next to and oftentimes uh, impacted. Um, and uh, But that that kind of um, systemic change had to be defined through collaboration between workers and community, that it couldn't be done in silos. And it was difficult because oftentimes the most polluting industries in that sector, the oil, chemical and atomic industry sector, were in black and brown indigenous communities. Um, when you look at, you know, how were those, like the waste incinerators, where they're located across the U.S., they impacted very poor working class communities of color, uh, where you had uh, predominantly white workers, um, you know, represented by these unions in these big nuclear power plants or waste incinerators or coal power plants and uh, oil refineries, um, having to sit down and talk to communities of color that had, they'd had no, uh, they didn't live in, they didn't, uh, they only 
came to work next to these communities at these toxic facilities and then got impacted themselves. And where those two huge divides uh, between a predominantly white unionized labor force and working class, very poor, some of the poorest communities of color were able to set aside their differences, overcome false jobs versus environment binary arguments and say, hey, let's work on solutions together is where we saw a lot of the most progressive visioning thinking occur. And out of that was really birthed the, the concept of just transition. Uh, so uh, my comrade Jose Bravo, who's the current director of the Just Transition Alliance, likes to point out, you cannot actually have just transition with, uh, without everyone at the table. So if you're a community-based organization and you're looking for a solution to stopping some polluting industry that's encroaching on your health and your uh, water and your land base, um, you need to bring the workers from that industry to the table to work on a, a long-term solution with them. And likewise, if you're a union struggling, fighting against some oppressive industry, without bringing in your allies from the community that are by being impacted by the same industry into your uh, conversations, you cannot actually succeed at a holistic pathway. Uh, so so just transition is, is not just that process, but I guess it's the pathway, it's principles. It's really uh, complex strategies that are targeted to bring about systemic transformative change and to come up with solutions that actually uh, are good on all these fronts that aren't just clean in terms of carbon dioxide emissions or aren't just clean in terms of mercury or aren't just uh, 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 sustainable because they employ a lot of people in neighborhood, but actually address all the needs of a society and ideally uh, really serve to, when you recognize that capitalism is, is at the root of most environmental crises around the world, that it actually transform, changes uh, that economic order itself that it, uh, it moves us away from economies of greed and hoarding and destruction and pollution to economies of caring and sharing and, and being really respectful of not only each other, but, you know, all species on Earth. So, so, that, so that, that having defined just transition, I say one of the most the best examples of how a just transition uh, is being realized. Now, it's, again, it doesn't happen overnight is really moving away from burn and bury industry, uh, pathways and dealing with garbage to a zero waste economy where you're centering the poorest uh, in your community, uh, realizing that you have to address employment issues and realizing that uh, if we totally reorganize how we think about the flow and the production and the consumption and then the reuse of materials, that we don't have to be wasting anything at all. Uh, that if we were to design our economy based on how uh, nature has uh, de developed a complex ecosystem that we could actually make that, create that transformative change. Because as we know, in nature, there's nothing such as waste. Nature uses everything, composts everything. All life gets put towards future life. And so the cycle of life is, is always about um, uh, material, the, the transformation of um, our material conditions in, in, in many ways. Like, uh, uh, and and if we were to design our economy to really repurpose everything that we used and made sure that we're not wasting anything uh, and follow some basic principles about respecting both material but also life, um, you know, the life that we extract from, the life that invests uh, labor into our economy, uh, and that if we were to respect the needs and integrity of all life, we would not need to waste. And you could create a, what people refer to as a circular economy, a closed-loop economy, I, I always point out that localized is really central to it. 
that creating a closed-loop localized economy uh, that really relies on the local resource base to, to generate our needs, that we can uh, move away from systems of waste and destruction and pollution and actually economic systems where actually we avoid such pandemics altogether, you know, yeah. avoid the material, the health conditions that lead to the impacts of such pandemics. Because as the other side of it, as we know, this is an environmental justice pandemic, that when you look at where the deaths are occurring, they're occurring in those communities that are, have the most pollution burdens, that have been most, whose health has been most compromised by other uh, adjacent industries like oil refineries and waste incinerators and toxic dump sites. So, so in a sense, uh, it's kind of a zero waste is one of those full spectrum, holistic, closed loop solutions that really looks at how do you move away from, we've created all these linear models of uh, what I call dig, burn, drive, dump uh, uh, industries to creating a closed loop model where you're actually uh, forced to think about how, you know, what are the limits to extraction in the first place? What are human and natural resources? And then you have this hierarchy of, um, of reducing, eliminating what we don't need, eliminating the single-use plastic bags that in this day and age no one should be producing at all, uh, eliminating anything that you would have to throw away or that was toxic or harmful to health or had impact before you even get to then what can we reuse out of stuff that's been manufactured and how do we then change the manufacturing pro process to, to produce more reusable materials or more long-term permanent materials as opposed to disposable materials in the first place, right? And so it's, it's almost this design shift that we need to take to, before we actually even get to uh, then, you know, things like recycling and composting, which should just be common sense stuff that everybody does across the board, uh, like wearing a mask and, <laughs> and physical social distancing in this time of pandemic. Um, it's insane that we still throw things stuff away and or do not put organic material back into the earth where it helps to um, generate nutrition and health. So, so I'm, I'm just touching on a few uh, subjects. There's uh, great literature on it. Um, Paul Conant, whom I mentioned earlier, actually came out with a book called Zero Waste. It's kind of comprehensive, kind of guidebook and, and shares history, but also shares philosophies. But what's important to note, actually, there's some re recent uh, revisioning of even the concept of zero waste that puts humans at the center because even with the old concept of zero waste, some people would claim it became kind of a bougie, liberal, white thing to do in affluent communities, but hasn't reached, you know, the poorest and most impacted communities, which is true. And so the recent revisioning has involved really understanding how we put the most marginalized communities and workers at the center of these uh, environmental conversations, including zero waste, and, and really realize that we need to um, invest in all those people driving uh, dump trucks, all those folks working in the industry that's still taking garbage to the incinerator or the landfill or even to the recycling plant and all those people working in those facilities trying to recycle, they need to be empowered. Their, their families need to be supported. Their, their job sites need to be safe. But then their leadership needs to be sought towards moving away from what's still unsustainable in that cycle of, you know, multiple dump trucks uh, or what have you uh, to, uh, to looking at how materials can be dealt with as close to home as possible. Sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for explaining that. So it seems like you're saying that we have to be addressing economic systems. We have to be looking at systems of governance, the way corporations operate. But would you say that some of the zero waste thing might also have to do with kind of how and why so many of us in the so-called developed world consume so much? Do you think that's a piece of it, too? Yes. And um, it's important. 
and um, and this is where uh, I really dissuade folks from getting into the the rabbit hole of Malthusian economics or looking at uh, because it ignores certain issues of class and race, um, you know, uh, that are critical. Uh, the whole thing around population being a problem, you know, where it uh, becomes a very elite argument, which actually doesn't involve center of the voices of most impacted. Because when you look at, and this is a good one, uh, discussion, because when you look at the ecological footprint of humanity, you quickly realize that it's less than 0.1% that actually have this burgeoning ecological footprint. Um, that it is not human need that is destroying this world, it is greed that is destroying this world. And that's really the fundamental shift we need to make to, in order to both address climate change but also dismantle capitalism, is uh, move away from systems of greed to addressing systems of need. How do communities define essential needs is really at the center of it. Because when you look at it, it's not the poorest, the billions and billions of people around this planet, it's not the poorest of the poor who are destroying this world. They actually, they have a very light ecological footprint. It's a very small percentage of the population and it's not even, people then tend to, um, because under oppressive hierarchical systems like colonialism, capitalism, imperialism, we oftentimes, um, many of us, you know, uh, oftentimes identify with our, trained to identify with the oppressor. We are trained to have the guilt of the oppressor. We, for, we forget that uh, actually it is not even our individual consumption which is causing this destruction. It is really the unsustainable production. It doesn't start with consumption. It actually starts with production. And that's where we need to flip the narrative because the consumption narrative is a very much a capitalist oppressor's narrative. They say, oh, uh, to, to shift the blame from themselves, the people destroying this planet and doing so because they are very greedy uh, and they have way more than they already need, to shift the burden of responsibility on the average consumer becomes a way to deceive and deflect real popular political thought and understanding of what really needs to happen. So it's not so much a consumption argument at all, it's or a population argument, it's really about an argument of greed. The fact that the, the greed of a very small sliver of society is destroying the planet but making other people's lives um, untenable, but not only that, is depriving most of the people of some of their basic needs. Um, so it's uh, the irony is uh, oftentimes the conflict becomes of how do you manage? Again, it becomes a binary of a consumption versus need, or jobs versus environment, as opposed to rich versus poor. And really, the fight is about rich versus poor. So, so population people who go on about population are. I, I, I discount them largely because that's not, not where the problem is at all. They're, they're, they play into this game of a very elite, uh, top-down forcing of, an, uh, of a framework that even you know, makes population an issue. It's not an issue. Uh, it's, it's, it's all about greed. If you, in fact, uh, I, I oftentimes say if you uh, spayed and neutered uh, the children of the 1%, that would kind of pretty much do, do away with the ecological problem. Of the, the 99% don't pose an ecological problem. So it's the greed of the 1%, not the consumption of the 99% that we need to tackle. It's a really important question. And yes, yeah, so I'm still up in the air about different aspects. I do think you're absolutely correct that it is a very small percentage of the world that is making the vast majority of the impact. I do think at a certain point of time, if we have humans and humans and humans, that also has an impact. But I, I do think sometimes that is overstated and yeah. I'm still open to all sorts of information on that. But something I want to ask you, and you might not be able to answer this, so just uh, just come up with whatever occurs to you. So these folks who are 
let's just say pulling the strings, let's say the top 0.1%, 0.01%, whenever you want to call it, they have more than they need, yeah. far more than they need. You're saying it's based on greed. So what's, what's going on in these people's psyche? I'm not mm. asking you to psychoanalyze, but I guess I actually am. <laughs> what's going on in the minds of the... Uh the uh, Elon Musk's and the Bill Gates uh, of the world and the Jeff Bezos and uh, those folks are really not much. Unfortunately, I think that's a problem. I think, uh, I think when I, uh, I, like I was telling you earlier, I think a lot of my work these days is becoming, uh, is about how do we shift the minds of the wealthy, the privileged. The more I do that, I realize the privileged are some of the most ignorant people on the planet. And that's where the problem lies. There's not much going on in the minds of these people. If these people were, you know, I, if these people were, taken away from all their wealth and privilege for an entire year and put out in a situation where they had to under, really understand what the common person, you know, uh, had to face. You know, I think their lives could be transformed. Um, I think when you have so much privilege uh, that you don't even understand what it feels like uh, to, you know, to, for wars to be waged in, in your backyard, for, you know, to be facing death every day, you know, through, you know, smokestacks or guns uh, or police violence, you um, I, th I think you um, you have a, you know there's definitely a ivory tower, rose tinted glasses, whatever, however you frame it, you know a view of this world that is not based in reality. I, I think when you look at the solutions these people pose to address the big crises of the world, it's it's that bizarre. You know, it's like they they live in a world that's not rooted in uh, what life is all about. You know, uh, so how many of these people have ever gotten their hands dirty by uh, tilling the soil or building a house or, you know, taking out the garbage, whatever have you. I mean, it, and it, it's, and I mean, and not to be broad brushstrokes about it. I think there is a, you know, the world of the Uber elite is so protected um, that uh, they, the, the shell, what the world that they're sheltered in is, is really the barrier to uh, both change, but also to um, um, our survival. Um, and uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's sometimes the simplest, all the stories of life, um, the story of the Buddha, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with that, a lot of people in our mm -hmm. world, uh, you know, it's really a classic case of how someone um, was able to liberate themselves from a very protected environment and go out and see, understand what pain and suffering was about to be able to seek a path of liberation that was very distinct to um, the conditions they were born into. And I'm not saying that we could turn an Elon Musk or a Bill Gates into a Buddha, but I think there's a, a, it's a worth, worthwhile effort because we oftentimes, a lot of effort is spent on trying to educate the masses. And uh, what I contend, it's we need to flip that around. It's not the masses we need to worry about. The masses are actually perfectly capable of determining their own uh, destiny if they're under the right conditions where when you when you remove the systems of oppression from the backs of the masses, they can figure out the pathway you know, to a healthier, safer, cleaner, more peaceful, more caring and sharing planet. But the systems of oppression, the few people, handful of people they serve, those then become our objects of, uh, uh, should become our objects, our, our focal points of effort where we uh, are shifting our education and, and trying to change minds. You know, we we have to decolonize. Um, and and it's, it's not as simple as that. I mean, I think there's, you know, the entire uh, uh, university uh, higher, you know, education complex really, which is part of this system of destruction, we need to start looking at that too. How do we liberate the minds of the professors and the faculty and uh, and even science? Because this becomes one of those conundrums. Um, I remember when uh, there's been a lot of, uh, and I support the fact that science, uh, you know, the the contention that science needs to be central. 
And yet when science has been serving a destructive economic order for centuries, um, does it have the agency to call itself independent yet? I'd say no. Uh, in the 2014 climate march, when some of the big uh, environmental groups wanted uh, Bill McKibben and a lot of scientists to lead the march, we some of us put our foot down and said, no, uh, scientists and religious heads do not get to walk at the front of the march because for the last few centuries, they have been supporting the other side. Science has largely supported the systems of destruction that have raped, pillaged, and destroyed the earth. It has not supported humanity, has not supported people. So until enough of them are working in service of the greater good and are working for our side, they don't get to march at the front. They have to organize their own first and organize all those universities and get all those people out on the streets and reevaluate what research they're doing, how they're doing the research, who that research is serving, until we can even get to the place where we can recognize them as a credible force serving our side. Similar with, to religion. So uh, that's one way of uh, speaking to that point of like, well, it's, it's really about flipping the script. It's really about telling, you know, totally contesting and, you know, upending everything that people have been told from up high and realizing the truth really lies um, on those front lines of destruction amongst the poorest of the poor. Excellent. Thank you for that, Ananda. So to conclude, let's say you're talking to one of these elites because they all subscribe to my podcast. I bet you didn't know that. And so let's say you get a chance over the next few minutes to talk to one of these individuals and say what they should be paying attention to. So go ahead and speak to them as if they're listening to you right now, which they're uh, definitely not. But <laughs> Well, it's a beautiful life out there. I would start out by saying there's much hope. I'd start out saying there's, um, when we look at um, the crisis of plastic uh, proliferation in our oceans, which they say is going to cause the decimation of the ocean fish population in 25 years or so, or when we look at climate change or biodiversity destruction, I, I converse to, uh, or... Uh, as opposed to, you know, finding that depressing, I, I see a lot of hope. Um, and I see hope because I do spend more of my time with uh, some of those communities on those front lines. And um, and that's where I learn from. I don't go in there to preach or teach or tell anyone how things are done. But, uh, for example, a few months ago, I had the privilege of um, facilitating conversation amongst 200 hunters uh, from an indigenous community, a remote indigenous community up north, about six hours north of here. Uh, people who, um, this was right before the pandemic started, so it was the, it was the last gathering they had in that uh, Indigenous community of people who came in to report on what they saw in the last hunting season. And the first thing that, um, and all I offered to do in facilitating was really take notes on a big piece of butcher paper that people could read back. And it was, you know, everyone went around the circle and reported back. And the first thing I noted is uh, that under their cultural protocols, what each hunter reported back was their ability to feed those in their community that were most in need. Whether they'd been able to provide their elders, the single moms, the, the, the uh, physically disabled and ill in their community with their winter supply of meat was their first order of business that they reported on, just as a matter of cultural protocol. And I went, no other hunter gathering would ever, you know, no rod and gun club or rifle association would ever talk about it in that way. Because it was not a privilege, it was a responsibility. They did this as a matter of social responsibility to meet the food needs of their community. And when I observed that, I was like, wow, that is the, the principle of reciprocity being manifested and embodied in practice. That is like people showing a value system that should be guiding everybody on the planet. How have we been able to protect those in our community most uh, under attack, most in need, most disabled, most vulnerable? 
you know, is the first order of business we should always be reporting on in any important gathering, right? And um, so I just use that as an example to say that when we actually look deep at um, those communities that have the oldest living wisdom about life and ecosystems and knowledge uh, in our backyards, and a lot of those communities, they may be invisibilized, they they don't have, um, you know, a voice in media or a few of them even have podcasts, right? They, they have now some of the young people are getting savvy to social media, but I think when we turn to those communities that are most impacted um, and most abused, most uh, under attack, most um, shot at by the cops, most killed and thrown in jail, that's where there's a lot of hope. And I think the wealthier of our world would, uh, would do them good, um, but they would learn a lot if they, they set aside uh, all the arrogance and ignorance that uh, is associated with our privilege and our wealth and, uh, and turn to those that we could really learn from about how to make this a better world. All right, elites, you heard it from Ananda. I think that makes a heck of a lot of sense. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. really appreciate all the work that you've been doing over the decades. And yeah, we need more folks like you. And you don't make it just about you. You're connecting with all these different communities and these efforts that aren't as heard, as you say, and they need to be more heard. And hopefully through this podcast, a few more people will know about it. Mm. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate what you do, too. Thank you. Great to see you again after a long time. Absolutely. Let's stay in touch and uh, and talk more uh, and reconnect. I uh, still have questions about what you're up to besides this podcast. So good. Yeah, to uh, learn more about that at some time. Sounds good, and we'll do. Okay. All right, man.